Hello, and welcome to Spark My Muse. I'm your host, Lisa Colon DeLay, and I bring you Soul School Lesson 252, You Are What You Love. Today on Soul School, I'm going to be featuring Chuck DeGroat. Chuck is a therapist, an author, and the professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Seminary. Chuck was very helpful as an endorser of my book, The Wild Land Within, and he continues to feature it in a spring class that he teaches at Western. For that, I am so grateful. One of the things I'm even more grateful for is for Chuck, who he is as a person. He wrote an article in May 2021, and I've just encountered it now, and I want to bring it to you. I'm sure that it hits a different way at this point in the cultural climate in the United States, but suffice it to say that when we surround ourselves with meek influencers, with those who are meek, and we allow them to influence us, instead of the culturally typical people who are narcissistic, into their ego projects, into their platforms, we will learn so much more how to be loving and Christ-like to others. His article comes from the reformedjournal.com, and it's entitled, It's Always Been About Love. Chuck writes, During a time of research gathering on seminary formation for my PhD, I recall a conversation with the former dean of a seminary. His classes were doxological as much as theological. So it surprised me when he said that it was the seminary's job to prepare students to answer ordination questions and the church's job to form character. It struck me as ironic that students were taught the arguments good Christians used against the Gnostics, but trained like brains on a stick. When I was in seminary in the mid-90s, my brain was chock full of memorized Westminster Shorter Catechism, but the rest of me was empty, disengaged, and ultimately unloving. If there was a precise test of autonomic nervous system activation, I suspect mine would have been off the charts. I lived in almost constant sympathetic activation, my fight-or-flight dance punching and retreating like a bloodied and weary boxer. In this anxiously attached state, as psychologists call it, I couldn't connect emotionally to others. I would have graduated and been ordained to serve a church in this state if it wasn't for a generous counseling professor who asked me if I longed for anything more than answers and explanations. Strangely, I did. I felt a palpable ache in my heart for belonging, love, and security. He smiled and welcomed me to the rest of my life. The 18-inch journey from my head to my heart has taken many, many years, requiring navigation through a cruel wilderness of shame and self-contempt, from disconnection to connection, from self-protection to vulnerability, from brain on a stick to embodied love. At 50, I feel like a beginner in love. In a moving recent essay, a friend and fellow journeyman, James K.A. Smith, writes, quote, As a young Christian philosopher, I wanted to be the confident, heresy-hunting Augustine, vanquishing the pagans with brilliance, and fending off the Manichees and the Pelagians with ironclad arguments. As a middle-aged man, I dream of being Mr. Rogers. When you're young, it's easy to confuse strength with dominance. When you're older, you realize the feat of character it takes to be meek. 
I used to imagine my calling was to defend the truth, capital T. Now I'm just trying to figure out how to love. How to love. This was also Dallas Willard's journey, according to his good friend and neurotheologian Jim Wilder. In his last months, Willard, a prolific writer on spiritual formation, wondered if people really change. Amidst all of the resources and practices and disciplines which foster formation, do people really become more like Jesus? Wilder, whose training is in psychology, engaged Willard on attachment psychology, a psychology of love. The lights went on for Willard. He discovered what Smith did. You are what you love. Even more, this is a neurobiological phenomenon, a whole person shift from disconnection to connection, from shame-fueled hiddenness to embrace, from exile to homecoming. All of our practices are in service of a maturing love within us. In my book, Wholeheartedness, I explore this neurobiology of love a bit, but I didn't share a significant story behind it. Seven years ago or so, I was in Cambridge, England for a small gathering with N.T. Wright. Around a circle of women and men exploring faith and formation, I was able to ask him for his best recommendation for a resource that explores spiritual maturation at depth. Without hesitation, he enthusiastically offered Ian McGilchrist's The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain, and The Making of the Western World, noting that it was a magisterial work. I had to look up the word magisterial later, but I nodded like I knew it. In the book, McGilchrist runs Western Civilization Through the Lens of Neurobiology, concluding that the emissary, the left brain, has become the master that we've become largely left-brained and logical, addicted to certainty and being right, prone to mastery and grasping, cut off from our more imaginative and creative right-brained resources, disconnected from the deep well of empathy and vulnerability. This shift has been hundreds of years in the making and is now our default style of engaging. Imagine how this impacts not just individuals, but churches and institutions as well. All of this came to a head recently while reading a stunning and searing new book by Willie James Jennings, After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging. Jennings laments the exaltation of self-sufficient white masculinity with its virtues of possession, control, and mastery, virtues which, as he argues, have become embedded in the practices of Christian institutions. It's not unlike what I've seen in narcissistic leaders and institutions where performance, control, certainty, entitlement, and abuse of power trump cruciform love. What Jennings says, which is echoed in the recent works of historians, Kristen Dumay and Jamar Tisby as well, is that these habits are now embedded, institutionalized, so normalized over decades and centuries that to become the kind of person or institution that experiences transformation, a sacred restoring through an intentional and disorienting journey must ensue. As Jennings says, quote, we live and die in story, unquote. The transformation or restoring that needs to happen, however, cannot and will not happen if we continue to operate according to the now-dominant left brain, 
And that leaves smart people like you and me feeling a bit anxious and under-resourced. How will it happen then? If I can't explain it and analyze it and control it and diagnose it, how can I change it? I consider Smith among the smartest folks I know, so I was floored by his remarkable testimony to a transformational therapeutic journey. He writes, quote, Eventually, through my therapist's patience and compassion, through a remarkable ability to be with me in a way that embodied grace, I realized what we were doing. He wasn't going to teach me or instruct me. Our conversation wasn't a way to exchange ideas. It was an exercise in re-narration. If I was going to be restored to health, it was because my imagination was restoried. This resonated deeply with my own therapeutic experiences. In moments of grief and tears, my therapist didn't try to fix me or correct me or analyze me. Instead, he was present in a way I'd never experienced with another person being present to me before. He was safe, steady, secure. In that space, my anxious grasping relinquished into surrendered love. I felt seen, known, mysteriously held, not just by a compassionate therapist, but by a God who abides and remains. Gradually, my tears shifted from a lament of past pain to an ache for love. As Augustine says, quote, the desire for grace is the beginning of grace, unquote. Grace broke through my weary and worn self-help strategies. New desires were growing in that liminal space. Old stories of shame were being transformed into new stories of love. Perhaps this is what the Apostle Paul discovered in his three years in the desert. The know-it-all prosecutor of Christians experienced a poverty of spirit, space, in the wilderness where he came to the very end of himself and discovered that he wasn't abandoned, but was held more intimately and lovingly than he knew. The Christian tradition used a wide array of metaphors, the desert, the dark night of the soul, disorientation, to describe this liminal space. But of course, after death, life, life and love, rooted and grounded in love, says Paul in Ephesians 3, and longing for himself and others to, quote, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Unquote. Maybe this is the fullness that Christian contemplatives like Bernard of Clairvaux and Julian of Norwich and Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and even the Westminster father Samuel Rutherford mused on, often poetically, often with imagery and language of marital union, secure and embodied love in the crucible of relationship. I pay attention when wise theologians and philosophers and cultural historians and neurobiologists and psychologists and contemplatives start seeing and saying some of the same things. And I begin to wonder what it means for us, for our churches, for our Christian institutions, all of us who seem regularly to lose the plot line of love. McGilchrist laments a shriveled imagination, a lack of wonder, and addiction to grasping that keeps us exiled from each other and from God. In this space, we stop listening. We abandon belonging. We lose curiosity. We lack empathy. We plot 
anxiously. Our divided selves manifest in divided congregations, divisive politics, disintegrating trust. Smith writes, The pathology that besets us in this cultural moment is a failure of imagination. Empathy is ultimately a feat of the imagination, and arguments are no therapy for a failed, shriveled imagination. These days I find myself asking a simple question of myself and those around me. It's the same question that professor asked me, a lost seminarian so long ago. What do you long for? What do we long for? Our longings reveal what we love. Are we content to put band-aids on broken relationships and systems? Or do we long for real belonging, real transformation, even if it requires a dark night to get there? Smith says that he's still trying to figure out how to love. I'm still such a beginner in love. Maybe stumbling along the way, we can do this together. And that was Chuck DeGroat's article in reformjournal.com, March 1st, 2021, entitled, It's Always Been About Love. I urge you to go to chuckdegroat.net, that's C-H-U-C-K-D-E-G-R-O-A-T.net. Buy his books, engage with the film that he has there called Wild Country of the Heart, Navigating the Seasons of the Spiritual Journey with St. Teresa and get to know what he's doing. This is the time for us to follow the wise, not the flashy. And I'm very grateful for Chuck's work. Thank you so much for listening to Spark My Muse today. If this episode helped you, please share it with somebody else. I also want to remind you that I need your help financially to make this work possible. Whether you can donate a dollar or five dollars a month, every little bit helps. You can find out a way to do that by going to sparkmymuse.com. Until next time, I wish you blessing and peace. Thank you.